Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next podcast here at Treknababble. This is Kevin. This is Matthew. Uh, we're sitting down to review uh, Season 4 of Deep Space Nine's Little Green Men. Uh, it's a pr- I can call this one of my personal favorites. Um, I always enjoy when Star Trek does comedy well, and uh, without giving away too much about my eventual rating, I, I think this is definitely one of their uh, better comedy episodes. Um, it's also one of their better time travel episodes, because, and we'll get to this when we get to the story, but I think they kind of wink at the absurdity by the, lo- the, the, the time and place we end up kind of solves what I would have otherwise had a problem with in terms of time travel problems. Like, the entire setup is silly, as is the episode. Yeah, you know, um, I've only watched this once, maybe, tw- uh, I think twice uh, in the past 10 years or whatever. So it's not super fresh, but I do recall a general species of objection in my mind, which is the same objection that I had to, uh, what's it called? Future tense, past tense, future tense, past tense, the past the, hom- tense. the homeless, the, the lesson in homeless yeah. people. Yeah. And you know, that basic species of objection is here. We have a series called deep space nine set in deep space and when they time travel, where do they go? Earth. You know, something about that strikes me as fundamentally uh, strange and uh, necessitating an explanation. So we'll see if I agree with you uh, that, you know, those sorts of concerns are sidestepped by the story. Um, I'll certainly try to enjoy it just for what it is. So um, do you want to get going? We yeah. should. Yeah. You should all get your media queued up and ready to go. And we will all press play together in three, two, one, press play. Okay, so um, I like that they didn't drop the Rom wants to go to Starfleet Academy story. I, I was very happy that that wasn't like one of those. I've gone through a major life change that we're never going to discuss again. Yeah. Um, so that that makes me happy, um, and th- and this scene is cute. Like uh, the the Ferengi actors as a group have a great rapport and always interact well together. So the the family scenes always slay me. Like proud father Rom. I'm so glad they you know gave him the character reboot they did towards second season, and he's so much more fun to watch. Um, a little production note, the shirt that Max Grotenchik is holding is, I, I believe it is um, the same shirt he wore as the Ferengi, was it Soval, Sovek, in oh, Captain's yeah. Holiday? Captain's Holiday. Yeah, it's that's Sovak. Sovak, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I definitely, so I, I guess I can kind of see where this setup is going now, knowing that they are going to time travel back to Earth. Um, you know, it's like the whole Starfleet Academy angle is a pretty clever way to get them in that direction. Yeah, like like I said, I the normal problems of time travel are, um, you know, that it's too neat, it's too destiny laden. We all have to make sure things have like no one ever says we must do certain things to ensure the safety of the timeline. It's more, we just have to avoid consciously choosing to screw with the timeline 
and that's in the context of Quark's greed, which is hilarious. Um, these see, these little character notes here are all really well done. Like Kira realizing that that Nog stole this from her quarters back when he was still juvenile delinquent is cute. The tooth sharpener bit, like these little these little no, little buttons, all really worked for me. I, I don't know. Do you think they're a little precious? Uh, no, they're pretty good. Um, I just have to ask you as a gay man, yeah. uh, is Kira's hair going to get better? I, I was, I, you know, maybe it's because I'm comparing it to the mullet she wore in the first season. I like this haircut fine. Um, yeah, I actually like this less, which is saying something, because I agree. <laughs> the earlier hair was not good. It's just like, it's like she, it's bedhead or something. It's like she woke up you know, and didn't have time to... I will say, my, my favorite hair for her is what is obviously the least practical for a woman with her job, that kind of like side sweep with the one braid, and I'm like, that's a very flattering haircut, but it also seems like a lot to maintain for a woman with a military job, but... Um, I also like that we get the uh, little follow... Like, one of the running jokes has been Gala and his moon, so I, I like that they brought that joke back. That always gratifies me when the writers remember things. Yeah. So this uh, ritual is about raising money for his trip by selling his possessions? Yeah. Okay. Which is good that they didn't use the phrase Age of Ascension again. Yeah. <laughs> swear, swear to God, they. I, I, I would bet my life there's a note on a script that says, say something else here later, and then they just never did. Yeah. No, it's just you can't use the same terminology as Klingons when... It's the Ferengi. Yeah. Okay, I want to say this has to be a reuse of the shuttle from Profit and Loss and the shuttle from any of the Nagel episodes, right? That, yeah, I gotta look... think this is the Negasis shuttle, absolutely. It's a, it's a good set. It, it, it might be... I would say it's at least as detailed as the runabout. Like the, the... Well, I mean, they're, they're shooting a lot of things in tight focus so that you can't really see the Ferengi stuff in the back. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I kind of like this outfit on Quark, actually. The the black collar, it lends him sort of a villainous air. That's, that's like the joke. You can take the ship for go and never come back. <laughs> you know, maybe I will say, I think obviously part of what I like about this episode is it's, you know, one of the best actors on the show with one of the most interesting characters doing one of the funniest bits for the character, which is his relationship with Rom. So, like, even if this episode has problems, this is a pretty decent coat of paint with which to cover them up. Like, you know, it's just... They have really good timing, really good rapport. Everything works. So even if the episode didn't, which I, I'm not saying it does, but even if it didn't, I would let a lot go. So, so our sort of storytelling hook is that uh, Quark has an ulterior motive. Surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> he's not just being nice and taking Nog to Earth in his nice new shuttle. Um, you know, so I, we're going to have to see uh, what the ulterior plot is. Um, do you feel like Ferengi episodes have settled into a groove at this point? Yeah, I, I think they know what they can do and what they can't, and they know that Armin Shimmerman could read a, the ingredients on a can of soup and probably do pretty well. Um, they, they've certainly settled on a tone for Quark's deviousness that I that I actually really like. 
Um, and when they stay on this track, it doesn't lead me to think, how is this man not in prison? Like, unlike, say, something like um, Invasive Procedures or the eventual um, one when he runs weapons, where it's like, no, 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 too far, too far. Yeah. This yeah. is almost cute. There, there's a there, there's a aura to Quark's deviousness where it's it's not malicious, it's not violent, it's just greedy. Quark, yeah. Quark is fundamentally greedy in a, in a, in a, it, it's one of his humors. Like there, there's no, like, it's just who he is. And his internal moral code says something to the effect of, if I can get away with it, then it's okay. Um, and, and, like the burden's on you to not be defrauded rather than the burden on me to not defraud. And it's not a moral code I share, but it's an internally consistent one. So this, it, watching him try to smuggle something that doesn't I mean, they, they never mention it being dangerous for itself i mean there yeah. must be some reason it's illegal but you know it doesn't feel like he's harming people or you know being callous he's just being greedy so i can watch that and enjoy it and then not wonder why the hell this man's not in prison for the rest of his life when they cross that line it annoys the hell out of me well it seems like they've gotten back to what was the original uh note for Ferengi in TNG and it was, you know, data delivering the line, you know, the, the phrase uh, is caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. It's like, finally, they've gotten back to that, you know, but what you just said about Quirk, it's, it's a very caveat emptor sort of uh, sentiment, right? Right. It's like, he's not evil. Yeah, but certainly. But if he's... he can get away with it, he will. Right. You know? And so it, it's, like, it's... for him, the wiggle room is the law not the not the failure of the law like that's that's life for him and i and and you know and we see odo like you know he part of the joke for them is they're far more like than they would admit and they're far closer in like odo is certainly willing to bend the break the letter of the law if it meets with his subjective moral code just as much as quark is yeah. So he'll absolutely let Quark slide on something or bring the hammer down unreasonably if it serves some other purpose. Some of these scenes, uh, because we've just recently seen The Visitor, uh, strike me as a little bit repetitive. You know, it's like Jake and Nog saying goodbye has already been done, even though it was an alternate feature. Well, I think I'm trying to think in reality, at least two weeks went by, maybe three if there was a rerun in the middle there. So I think at the time I wouldn't have caught that. I always have to be careful of what I think, especially in this age of Netflix, of what I think is a too recurring theme when I binge watch a show. So uh, I don't think that would have been as obvious had we not just watched The Visitor like last week. Yeah. So this thing is called A Cadet's Guide to Sector 001 Earth. It really should have been a lonely planet guide, but you know, whatever. Well, I also um, I, I love the idea that it, it's it's like the great failing of Star Trek's ability to predict the future that one book would be on one pad because at the time that would have been an advance that just yeah. always slays me now. Well, I mean, he's saying it's a completely interactive program. Like maybe <laughs> the hardware is tailored. Oh, for you the... mean an app? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I would never use that term, but. Um, I'm too much of an old-fashioned guy to say app seriously. Um, I like this moment. Like I, I, you know, like I'm glad they had it. The two characters have always had a good relationship, and you know, like their friendship was a platform for like some really fun 
discussions of Federation principles in practice. So I, I like that they had a good buy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, this hair doesn't bother me. I, I uh, It's just like, it looks kind of vaguely dirty. So this is clearly a, a reuse yeah. of, of various optical elements. <laughs> Armin Shimmerman is making me laugh just sitting in the chair. He's like, he's clearly like mimicking someone. Like, I don't know if it's like, you know, Kirk or Picard or Cisco, but he is clearly sitting in the chair the way he thinks a captain sits in the chair. It's just, it's little, it's little touches that kill me. This is interesting dialogue. It, you know, it it shows uh, Nog is a bit more open-minded. You know, he's yeah. he's it, the kind of people who would be called like an Anglophile or a Francophile. Right. You know, he's like an Earthophile. You know, it's a pretty funny line reading. So it's chemocyte. You know, I always have to every. I've been burned a few times because I assumed that it was a fake mineral they were talking about, and then Wikipedia tells me no, real thing. I do, I believe chemocyte is in fact fake. Yeah, I, I've never heard of an element or a compound even close to that. Well, there's there's about a thousand copper ores in the world, and some of them have some pretty out there names. So I was, every so often I just double check. And it, maybe this is why a lot of the jokes are working. They're, they're clearly working in the character work they've established with these characters. Like, like you know, Rom acknowledging that, you know, when he has the opportunity to, you know, do this kind of work, he excels. And it's like all of that, all that works. Um, you know, it, it's what we talk about a lot when Star Trek does humor. Nothing. I'll say this. I don't think there's a moment in the episode where my intelligence is insulted or Star Trekness has to be set aside for the sake of the joke. They they're they get into a humorous situation, but the jokes, like the humor of those three people stems from the relationships that the writers have already established in other episodes. Yeah. It's not sort of broad, quote unquote. And I've never understood that term and I need to look it up and figure out the etymology, but it's not the broad Scotty whacking his head on a right, pipe right. or, you know, Jar Jar stepping okay, in a doo-doo. Okay, this, that made me laugh. This, both of those made me laugh. The, the the fact that there is some evidence of Gabriel Bell looking like uh, Captain Sisko and the all-humans look alike crack, like, that's funny. Yeah. So their ship has been sabotaged. I'm kind of just like wondering how long it takes them to get to Earth, you know? Like, shouldn't it take weeks? Uh, space, time, months. There. I'm. Well, Cassidy establishes that it would be like eight weeks at high warp to the Cesta system, which we can assume for the sake of the discussion is on the other side of Federation space. And they've so always, at least four weeks. Right, they've always implied that uh, the Earth, that 
Earth is, you know, the center of the Federation. We don't know if that's, you know, physically or metaphorically. But uh, it's it's one of those, I've learned to let it go. I've made a conscious decision to let those kinds of things slide because that well, way... Like, if they that, tell a story that's yeah. worth existing. Yeah. Like, if the episode hinged on that information and it felt like a cheat, I'd be more annoyed. But it doesn't. Um, so we've done our drastic cut here. Um, and it's obvious to anybody watching that right. this is a very earthy sort of backdrop. I guess the, the sci-fi question is, is this real Earth? Is this, like, you know, mirror Earth? Yeah. I want to say this was right on the cusp of when smoking on TV, even in even where appropriate, um, became verboten. Like sometime in the mid mid to late '90s, no character on TV smoked again. Like I think even the smoking man on X Files never actually smoked again. He just had a lit cigarette in his hand. So I, I kind of I always I appreciate when period pieces do things correctly, and everyone in the room would be smoking like chimneys. I was, so I was reading, um, I think it was um, uh, Iris Stephen Bear who was saying they thought they leaned a little hard on the tobacco joke in the episode. And that's like, a, it's, like it's a bit of a cheat to like criticize the, back, the relative backwardsness of this period of humans because they smoke cigarettes. He thought that was kind of, they, they thought yeah. they leaned a little too hard on the joke. Which, which I really I, yeah. want General Denning to get into his jammies and start jamming. Yeah. You know. Is, for anyone, hey, brother. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't recognize the actor, <laughs> he played one of the hippies in what, what was it? Way to Eden. The Way to Eden. The Way yeah. to Eden in the original series, and uh, he, his name was Adam. Yeah. Well, he 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 grew up to be his father, like I believe a lot of hippies eventually did. Um, <laughs> um I like the uh, I I like the look at untranslated Ferengi. Um, I'm kind of glad they didn't go to the effort to create an entire, you know, fiction, fictitious Ferengi language because it was it was fun for the Klingons, but I, you know, they don't need to do it every time they have an alien speak. Yeah. Um, as far as the the language itself goes, it sure as hell sounds better than Bajoran. I've never liked Bajoran. Yeah, it always f- sounded a little like and now speak in alien words. Like it doesn't have the fl- and it's probably a testament to Shimmerman's acting that he can. Uh, speak a foreign like a fake foreign language with the rhythm like it's a real actor like a real language <laughs> I also like that they avoided other cheap jokes like being flummoxed by a doorknob cuz yeah. I have to believe that you know like in older parts or on less technologically developed worlds the doorknob is not a, you know, unknowable invention. So I was like, no one was like, how does this work? I love Megan Gallagher. Yeah, she's great. She, yeah, she is awesome. She was she was great as what's her face in Invasive Procedures, um, the girlfriend. Muriel. Yeah, and uh, she plays another character in Voyager that I liked. It was the one with yeah, the... she someone uh, she falls for the doctor. I yeah. Think. Um, but this is, I think, her 
uh, signature role because I mean, come on, the hair. The oh lipstick. yeah. It, I, 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 anytime I've watched Mad Men, you can always tell there, there's a handful of actresses where it's like, oh, you should really be dressing like this all the time because this. It, same thing with like Downton Abbey, where it's like, yep, that hair, that dress, perfect for you. It's a shame you were born now. Um, well, speaking of Mad Men, she is the sister-in-law of. Oh, never mind. Catherine Hicks played Jillian in Star Trek IV. Who am I thinking of? Um, who's the Who's the redhead in Mad Men? Oh, uh, Christina Hendricks. Christina Hendricks, not Catherine Hicks. Yeah. Very similar sounding names. <laughs> anyway. I like this look into the Ferengi afterlife, that your your life is literally, like, of course how much you are, are worth at the time of your death would affect the Ferengi afterlife. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not all that dissimilar from, say, an Egyptian right. view of the afterlife. You know, you can take it with you. And, you know, they cast these guys pretty well. Uh, they're delivering the lines. Now, I do recall the joke that's coming up very shortly. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how I feel about it. It's funny. I, You know, a sprinkling of broad physical comedy. My father... Is a is a huge Three Stooges fan, and I am. I certainly enjoyed watching them growing up. You know, like a little shtick. It goes a very long way. It's 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 a it's a seasoning, not an entree. And they, they don't come back. Come on, they're all pounding their heads. That's funny. <laughs> it's funny. <sighs> I think they, they don't lean too hard on it. It's a light moment. And it set, I think it does set the tone for the episode that it is kind of absurd. And it, I don't know, it, I enjoy watching them suss it out. Like the, and I like that Quark figures it out first. Like, that yeah. makes sense. Like, and well, I like that the people go along with it for as long as they do. I think that makes sense. We would be looking for any touchstone we could in this actual situation. I, 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 think, it, I think it works. The idea and the execution are both sound to me. So anyway, I liked uh, I liked the fact that Nog doesn't have perfect information. He just sort of skimmed over something in his guidebook. Yeah, and he thinks they're in Australia. Um, but I, I do also like that. You know, Cork sees an opportunity for uh, personal gain. Yeah, which of course is consistent with his character. Yeah, you, you, your comment about perfect knowledge is, is is very well taken. Like I've just been listening to this very detailed, like 180 episode long podcast. I'm in like episode 50 on ancient Rome, and I feel I know a fair amount more than the average, you know, non-professional Roman historian certainly. But if I were to wake up tomorrow in ancient Rome, even aside from the language issues, I would absolutely not be able to get around like it wasn't a thing. Like, I wouldn't know where to get breakfast. Like, that, yeah. yeah like, so I, I appreciate that he's not, in, <laughs> no one brought along Waylon, the 20th century historian. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, so this dialogue is, is very cute. Well, I like this because it's, it's like this little, like, loving wink to the, you know, pie-eyed naivete 
of exactly the people who made Star Trek 10 years after this point, you know, like, like this is the people who would watch Star Trek in 10 years and fall in love with it, you know? Like, like the, 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 the married professional couple who have a positive outlook on the universe. That's exactly who would watch the original series. Like I find it, I, and, and it, and it suits the characters that they're, you know, they're doing what I think people in that position would do. They're observing and hypothesizing and watching. And that's, that's good. Okay. So this, here we go this to is, the this is the stuff. closest that we get to you stupid 20th century humans. Well, I, I just, you know, I have a hard time believing that, you know, the Earth would be the only place where, uh, you know, atomic weapons would be used and it would be seen as so backward and stupid. You know, I could maybe if they had one more line explaining that it was a relative rarity, that there is that part of the reason humans went from, you know, no barter system to interstellar power in 5000 years is a certain reckless monocular drive that includes things like setting off nuclear explosions in your own atmosphere that other species don't exhibit. I, I could have t I, I would have accepted that explanation at least somewhat, but th they don't harp on it and it doesn't it's not as bad as some first and second season next gen examples of the stupid 20th century humans so so the um you know the characters here if you've ever watched something like uh the day the earth stood still yeah. or, or various other uh sort of 50s sci-fi movies these are very uh archetypal um american movie characters yeah you know you've got the professor who sort of is sweet on the nurse and the nurse who's compassionate and uh, the, the toughest nails general. Yeah. I'll... And it works, you know, with the exception of banging their heads. <laughs> I, I, I found that funny. Um, and I'll say this, they managed to make, and it's, I think it's a credit to the actor, certainly to Megan Gallagher. I actually like and care about these two people. Like the cigarette bit was cute. Like, that's a rope that that is a contextually appropriate romantic gesture. Sure. Yeah. You know, writing for guest characters is, uh, okay. And so now in the same scene, we're getting commentary on atomic weapons and tobacco. See, and again, here's the thing: there, there are no other species, right? Right. There are no other, especially like, the Ferengi who would deal sell, in this like, kind of stuff. Cork would sell these people tobacco. He runs a yeah. bar. <laughs> yeah. He he runs a bar and gambling and Holosuite establishment. Like everything he does is yeah, every destructive. Every vice it... <laughs> that exists in the future is what he deals in, and he's like, you know, fundamentally opposed to tobacco. Give me a break. Like he should be selling it on Deep Space Nine. And running afoul of, you know, pollution laws or something. So here's the ship. You know, these photographs, it's hangar 18. Uh, I like the, those photographs were obviously photoshopped, but very well done. Like, just good prop work. Yeah. Yeah, it, it fits very nicely. And so, you know, this sort of uh, tension between the characters, 
you know, the military guys who are, you know, worried about the aliens. Uh, I like the President Truman reference. Um, you know, but you just have this distrust, you know. Yeah. And it's a very cliche character to some degree, you know, the general who, you know, is so outrageously militaristic, you know, but it's it's one of the tropes of the genre. Maybe that's part of what I'm enjoying here. Like any time Star Trek goes on a field trip to another genre of storytelling, I almost always have a good time. So we're clearly doing a loving send up of the alien invasion movies of the 50s. But it's it's well done and I you know when I first saw the promo for this like you know like the week before on last week's episode um, I remember thinking, oh, they're gonna make them the Roswell aliens, because I, I and I can't remember if the episode, if the trailer just gave it away explicitly or it was just obvious from context. But I was worried about that, where it would start, where it would feel too schlocky, a little too precious. But the episode taken as a whole doesn't fall into that trap for me, because I like they said, like the tropes are like the platonic form of the trope like it's not it's not a trope because they're too lazy to come up with a character it's a it's the trope because no, they they're going wanted the trope. yeah exactly. so all of this works as this like humorous self-aware take on this movie and it, it it's a piece of human culture that i think absolutely has a place in the development of the star trek world we like to watch and the star trek show that we are in fact watching like the people who wrote star trek watched these movies as kids so there's there, there's something that satisfies me about both both like internally as just a self-contained piece of entertainment and as a as but one of the things i really liked about far beyond the stars was the very very loving you know array of sci-fi writer homages because i like i like when star trek acknowledges its pre-tos roots from like a literature standpoint so like on many levels, I think this episode is just fun and entertaining and a loving nod to many things that made Star Trek Star Trek, eventually. Uh, I agree with that. I feel I would be remiss if I did not mention the use of gold uh, as a bargaining chip in this scene when it's been sort of variously established and then retracted that gold is worthless. Well, uh, we haven't compared... done the Latinum episode yet. We haven't had Quark go, there's nothing here but worthless gold. Yeah. Um. Because TNG Ferengi seem to think gold is valuable. They were offended we made jewelry with it. Um, yeah. Again, that's one of those things, you know, just... <laughs> this this franchise has 729 distinct moving parts, not all of them written by the same people at the same time. Stuff's going to get lost. So we'll, we'll let it... We'll, I'm happy to let it go. Okay, the, the, it, it, the, the number of times he's blown smoke in his face is, is funny to me. Maybe, Have they established what year this is supposed to be? I believe the pan to the calendar in the teaser was 1947, and that's the tip-off to the audience that this is okay. going to be Roswell. Then yeah. there's the weather balloon reference. Here's what I like about the use of time travel in this episode, because every other time we time travel... The big deal, especially in the past, on Earth, 
don't change the timeline. Step on no butterflies. We'll get yeah. back and everyone will be dead or whatever. Like, so here, Quark doesn't care because Quark wouldn't care. Yeah. No, I, I, I do like that aspect of the story. So we get to see a different iteration of it, and it's in context for the character. Of course, Rom is cautiously concerned for Quark getting them in more trouble, and Nog, the proto-Starfleet officer, is the one explicitly urging such caution. So all of that works. Uh, the Umox joke. See, this works too. The <laughs> now this com- is funny. The comedy like- is just funny. <laughs> so wrong. <laughs> I feel more comfortable with you. (laughs) You know, this joke is really filthy if you think about it for longer than a second. Really disgustingly filthy. Ram says, come to think of it, my ears bothering me too. You know, it's... It's really filthy humor, but somehow I always find it charming. (laughs) And I like the, 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 the... The characters seem to catch what was going on, which I also liked. (laughs) <laughs> she's so cheerful okay as Twisco I enjoyed this one yeah um... it's a little precious but oh uh, you know it, again the <laughs> That was not the best green screening they've ever done. Those were clear. Well, there's no shadows under his hands. I yeah. mean, it's... It's, it, it's, it's one of those like, oh, I, how much narrative integrity am I willing to sacrifice to have an excuse to watch Armin Shimmerman, Renee Arbogenois snipe at each other? And it turns out a fair amount. Well, my concern is, I mean, aren't they being surveilled at all times? You know, yeah, that was a two-way mirror. Well, and you know, they have at least film cameras, and in any of these movies, you would expect the aliens in a room to always be being filmed at any point. Uh, you know, like I don't mind it as far as like sort of the Roswell parallels. It's like they're supposed to be shape-shifting aliens, and you know, the Ferengi are not all that dissimilar from you know, sort of short grays right right you know with with big eyes or big ears i you know i missed when he was talking about the dog before were they saying that they found the dog recently or something no he's just saying oh they left that here but uh, in the earlier scene the professor when he was outside talking to the general he was like you know petting the dog yeah but where did the dog come from as far as they were concerned i don't think they said okay i wonder wonder if he replaced a dog. Hmm. See, I like this. These are humans I can manipulate. Like, these are humans I like, humans I understand. Like, that's interesting. Like, especially in light of, like, you know, conversations with, you know, Garrick about the Federation being so bubbly. Well, so, you know, Quark is still a... uh patriot to some degree yeah you know he wants the ferengi to benefit from the technological leap but he wants to be the negus
Alright, that was a better effect that time, just because, you know, just had to be a dog. The, 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 the casting people did a really good job with this lieutenant, with the, uh, lieutenant guy there. He's just, he just looks like the, you know, slightly loose cannon, sneering guy, like they just, it's like, it's like they went back in time and got an actual person from that period to bring here to portray himself. <laughs> so these guys are willing to torture. Yeah, speaking of, uh, we were talking about the props earlier. Just every time they pan around, there's like some little detail in the back that's really good. Like obviously, I assume this might be some standing set, but the the set decorators really did a good job. It doesn't look underdone at all. There's a ton of little touches that all really work. Well, you know, the interior set is much more uh, decked out than the exterior. The exterior looks like they just found like a car and a plane right. and they put it, they put it in front of, you know, just a, uh, a garage. Yeah. You know, or like, or like one of the back lot, you know, buildings. Yeah. yeah. One of the warehouses. Well, you know, Cork is overplaying his hand, talking about the Russians, talking about the atom bomb, you know, he doesn't realize the sort of political sensitivity. Right. Actually, that would have been a fun, like a, a, a like a fun, explicit conversation for Quark to acknowledge the. Uh, I mean, like there are obviously still cultural differences for humans in the 24th century. They just seem to carry far less political significance. It'd be interesting to see Quark navigate, like, like who in the what now? Like, it, it would be like you know now nowadays going back to the Rome podcast I'm listening to. There's you know there's Italians. They're a contiguous people from Italy. You know, 2,000 years ago, they were, you know, a dozen diverse tribes all living on the boot. And, you know, that would have its own separate set of political consequences. I, it would have been fun to explore that a little. Yeah. So, you know, the professor and the nurse are, you know, playing the sort of, uh, you know, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this, which is very much like a lot of these movies. Oh, I, I want them to pan back to the map. I want to see if uh, the map includes Hawaii and Alaska. I got to think they'd have a 48 states. Uh, I certainly, it sure, sure looks like it goes to the edge and there wouldn't be room for it. And, and there, it didn't, couldn't tell if there were insets. I haven't even, I haven't seen a flag yet, so I haven't checked to see if there were 48 stars. Oh, he, Max Grodenchik is just an—he is an unsung hero of an actor for me. He's, for the amount of time he has to be shrill and annoying, I almost always like watching him. So when he when he blurts out the entire story, hilarious. So it's interesting that they're all sort of playing different. <laughs> different angles yeah you know, and they don't agree on them <laughs> oh, i love that line we're helpless we're harmless we just want to sell you things 
you scientists. <laughs> Klingon shock troops. Like even the so even the like the the gambit he's playing here, the like untie me so I can show you what we're doing. Like, the, it, it it's stupid, but it's like contextually appropriate stupidity because that's exactly what would happen in the you, you know invasion of the whatever movie playing in the 1950s so i i can forgive it well i mean it does look like there's an inset on the bottom left All right, it's I, hard to tell if it's yeah, supposed to be alaska yeah if it's just the legend or what no no I, no no alaska that would look just like the the legend well done prop people well done um, Robin <laughs> Shimmerman's so funny. Yeah, you know, again, it it is sort of a movie trope and a Star Trek trope. You know, whacking someone with a tray is enough to <laughs> like you know. knock them unconscious. This this yeah. was Trek foo. Yeah. And the, the, the stormtroopers there, really bad at their jobs. I'm reasonably certain guards aren't supposed to leave their posts, but, you know. Well, but the captain needed to see him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With your finger? <laughs> I'm always weirded out when Odo moves quickly enough to, like, dislocate a hunk of hair. It's always just... It looks wrong to me. Yeah, I mean, these lamps are pretty nice, but that could just be something that's existing on the Paramount. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, they threw up the 18 and threw a tarp over some stuff. That, But the, the interior was certainly... Yeah, the tarp is probably over, like, a golf cart or something. <laughs> see all the little jokes are funny like the federation crack it's just <laughs> I actually think it might have been funnier if they had just like told her to shut up or they had just kept going you know and that the audio had trailed off and we didn't get to hear her say that because that line is very uh Edith Keeler. Yeah. You know? Um and it would have been funny if they had just, you know, said, eh. That effect, not the best, but not the worst. Yeah. <laughs> it's the it's the cigar puff right at the end that really that sells it. 
we fly straight into the atomic explosion. Yeah, you know, so this, like, illegal material is what allowed them to travel in time. It's, you know... Well, I, I also question, why would a fission explosion be capable of generating enough energy or in a... Like, it's not like... The, I mean, they have fusion reactors on that ship. Assumably. Yeah, they have warp drive. Right, they have the energy sources that are far more capable. All of the radiation produced by an atomic bomb is available in far higher proportions in outer space. So that being said, part of what I enjoyed about this is the sense that you know the the cause of and the solution to the problem in these movies was very often the you know atomic bomb going off near the colony of ants or whatever. So even this dialogue has a taste of that of that type of movie. So like like we have to fly into the atomic cloud. Like that that's exactly something a character would say in a 1950s alien invasion sci-fi movie. So well, I enjoyed know, that. I can't help but think about the fourth Indiana Jones movie. Um you know, because it, it it's in a very similar uh, time frame and it's got the atomic bomb and it's got the fridge and all that stuff uh, but i don't think this episode nukes the fridge so to speak yeah uh, and it's because it is being played for comedy whereas the indiana jones uh movie it 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 never goes for straight comedy you're still supposed to take it seriously yeah and you know it that bit just went too far in the indiana jones And now we're back. Uh, Naga's been dropped off. So did he have to sell the ship for salvage because of the chemosite? No, I think so the ship didn't work anymore and they needed passage home. Okay. I just find that weird that they would have to sell things when they were on Earth, essentially. Like, in whichever... paradise, people would have just been going to Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Yeah, Odo could have gotten them a runabout. Eh, it's fine. It's not. It, it, we, we needed a reason that Quark doesn't have perpetual access to this thing anymore. Um, well, but now he knows how to do it. Yeah. And, and that is, of course, the fundamental uh, problem of all time travel stories. If you make it too easy, you know, it just raises the ever-recurring question of why this isn't now Doctor Who that we're watching instead of Star Trek. Um, okay, well, I agree that the comedy works, uh, you know. I only found one joke to be too far, uh, and it wasn't that bad. Um, so it, it's definitely, you know, in the same sort of solar system as good comedy episodes in both DS9. This is really the first DS9 comedy show, isn't it? Is it just Everything the else first, has been yeah, pretty is it, serious. Is it just the first one that was actually funny? <laughs> Um, well, yeah, maybe move along home. But, was uh, supposed to be, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, I don't think there's been like a. Hmm. There hasn't been an intentional tonal shift comedy episode, 
as far as I can recall. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I don't think so. I'll, I'll... Maybe Q-less or something. But... No. But yeah, I I, th I, I was thinking uh, back like what I'm eventually going to rate this, and I was comparing in my head to Rascals. Rascals, we basically, we both gave threes to on the idea that while the plot setup was incredibly stupid, the comedy was so funny, it, you know, makes it better. Here, I don't think the setup is nearly as, it, I don't think the setup is a problem here the way it was in Rascals. Like, the, the conscious, cho like, the, the attempt to do the riff on the alien invasion um, science fiction movie may, it solves a lot of those problems because the problems with this story are the problems with those stories, the stories we were intentionally doing an homage to, so it covers up a lot. Um, I like... I, I enjoyed the... It, I, I'll say this. I think they solved most of the time travel problems with the setup. Like, the, the role they ended up playing in Earth's timeline wasn't the, go wasn't the dramatic goal of the episode. It wasn't like they had, oh god, we're, no one got, oh my god, we're in Roswell. We need to pretend to be the Roswell aliens. Like, that happened almost accidentally. Yeah, I think, I think that's uh, relatively clever and economical writing. You know, and it fits with the other sort of uh, Star Trek time travel things we've gotten, you know, the time timeline is going to play out as it's supposed to play out. It just is the case that this was the Roswell incident, right. you know, um, you know, and it is the case that Quark did not have any lasting effect on human history other than, you know, creating a bunch of conspiracy theories, basically. Right. Uh, and, you know, so I like that. I think it's economical and clever. I agree with you. Uh, I mean, as a fan of classic sci-fi, I enjoy this on that level. And so, you know, you, you, yes, you can forgive some creakiness in logic or in consequences if you're on board with the basic idea of the homage right. and, then, and i am and then even internally for the characters on the show we're watching all of all of the drama and all of the humor flowed from the characters and relationships that already existed in universe the jokes are the jokes because this is like we we know quark's going to be greedy rom's going to be befuddled um all of the Nog's going to be conflicted. Right. So, yeah. like, all of the things that happened to the characters in the episode, all of that flowed organically from the characters we're watching. Like, Quark making fun of Rom is something he would have done regardless of the setting, and it worked here. So, the fact that they... It, it wasn't like you could have just dropped in a different character and had the same story. The, the, like, it had to be the group of characters that was there for this story to be told. Well, and so, you know, you compare this to something like Past Tense, and... You could have dropped in any other character, except Cisco's the closest to, like, an actual, you know, person in there, like, in the, especially in, like, the hostage scenes. But beyond that, had you had, had Kira and O'Brien been the ones with Cisco, the episode would have played out exactly the same. One it could them... have essentially been a TNG story. There was really nothing Deep Space Nine about it. Right. This was no. Deep Space Nine. Like the like one of the recurring themes of the show is an exploration of the Federation's Federationness and its and Quark's, you know, criticisms of it. So like that actually, this is a part of that narrative. Like 
so the the writing is better than you would think it would be when you read the description of oh so quark's the roswell alien like like there's there's more meat on the bone than just that joke that said i don't know what this really tells us overall like i don't know what i learned or what sort of deep insight i've gained from watching this um you know like the the stuff about the atomic bombs and smoking was really really obvious yeah and uh i mean especially like this wasn't the 1980s where you could think that a majority of your audience still was okay with smoking or did not realize the well or with mutually assured destruction as a logical defense posture right right like (laughs) it's like all of these jokes are are or not jokes, but like moral lessons are teaching okay. us things that we have been asked and answered for 10 years at this point. Yeah. I, you know? Yeah. It, it's, it's not transcendentally good, but I certainly don't think it suffers from like something like rascals where the setup was just painfully silly and then was salvaged by Emmy worthy acting. Um, this was a fun idea with a fun execution. Yeah, I agree. Um, as far as acting goes, uh, you know, Armin Shimmerman is is Armin typically good. Yeah, you know, uh, they, you know, there there wasn't as much sparring between he and Rene Abergenois, uh, which was too bad. Uh, you know, they they sort of got to and got past yeah the uh tension of what should we do. You know, it was really like René Arbergenois was the deus ex machina. Right, he needed to be there to make sure no one else made sure that Quark... He was just there to move them towards the solution. Right. You know, not to actually be a character. Um, He he doesn't learn anything, you know? Yeah. He just, he plays the same role. Right, I get Uh, that. The acting is fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, You know, nothing is... Uh, revelatory. Uh, Armin Shimmerman is the best of the crew. Yeah. Uh, uh, I like the guest acting all around. I thought oh, the ju- well, yeah. The, I, yeah. Certainly. Uh, all three of the principal guest actors, four of the principal guest actors were really well cast. Uh, especially Megan Gallagher, who, you know, she should be a regular as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, she's a good actress. I don't know in what capacity. I just like watching her, you know. Uh, Preferably in a capacity with this sort of wavy, dark reddish hair. Because <laughs> it's, it's just a great look for her. Well, the, um, the, the period costume suits her really well. Yeah. And and the, the ruby red lip. You know, both of those things. Stick with that. Um, you know, but Charles Napier, you know, it's nice to see him back in the Trek fold. Uh, he was actually probably the, the highlight of The Way to Eden as far as the guest actors, you know, his rapport with Spock, but his sort of deviousness uh, really worked in that episode. And, you know, he really nails the uh, gruff general. Uh, it, it is a cliche. It is an archetype. He, he's definitely, you know, fulfilling the trope, but to its tropey best. Um, and the same goes for the guy who played the captain, you know, he seemed like just the sort of bigoted, uh, you know, nasty human that you would see who would have shot Klaatu, uh, you know, in The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, 
So yeah, you know, I'd say it's at least average, if not above average. Yeah. Uh, production values. Some of the ship effects were not great. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, in this, we're in this bizarre netherland where we still use models, but a lot of the work is being done with early CGI, so it's it's not it's not just model work, but it's not the really good CGI that we get toward the end of Voyager, say. Yeah. So it's it's definitely this like middle ground. Um, still, it's not nothing's bad. No, nothing was horrendous. Yeah, and the morphing effect from the dog to Odo was pretty cheesy looking, because uh, the lighting was just not matched well, yeah. and it, it makes you feel like they didn't have the budget or the time right, or something. Right. To really work on it because we've seen much better effects prior to this uh in way of the warrior right that was the uh yeah. when he was morphing off of the bulletin board was yeah, terrific that, yeah that looked awesome um in the balance i'm gonna give this a four um i think the idea is a nice is a pleasant twist on time travel and the acting and humor so well executed the homage to the sci-fi movies of the 50s incredibly well received i i always i i thoroughly enjoy watching this episode every time i watch it and in the balance i think it is above average well i i have to say i think i've been convinced i think uh you know whatever i mean i hate to be a curmudgeon even though it keeps happening over and over uh you know and I'm happy when my curmudgeonly tendencies can be overcome. And I, I, they have been here. Um, you know, I think part of it, a lot of it has to do with Megan Gallagher. Uh, and I don't mean that to be facetious. I mean, like, the way she plays that character so perfectly uh, embodies the thing that they're sort of lovingly referencing. Yeah. That that sort of feature of the episode overcomes the really ham-fisted uh, quote-unquote moral lessons uh, and the fact that we really didn't learn a whole lot that was new about the characters. It was just fun. Um, now I'm almost kind of talking myself out of a four and into a three. Um, No, I still think it's a four. I think the comedy is good enough. There are enough laughs uh, that it, uh, it it works just well enough for me to get above the fat part of the bell curve yeah. and into, into something a little better. Um, I mean, in some sense, it's just refreshing to have Deep Space Nine be fun. You know, because you know, you may disagree with me on this, but I think there have been a lot of Deep Space Nine stories that have been sort of uh, self-serious. Yeah, you know? I, I mean, I get that, and obviously, we are at the part of Deep Space Nine where even the most ardent fan and defender of Deep Space Nine goes, "Oh no, no, from here on out, it, it, it's it's better." So we're, I believe, this episode is evidence of that. They have they have found a tone. And stories, and like they've they found a way to make the points Deep Space Nine makes in a way that is not as funereal as some previous stabs might have been. And I, I'm just looking at our 
reviews up to this point. I mean, it was a, an eight, a ten, a six, a five, which I still disagree on. I think that episode was at least a six, uh, a nine, a six, and now another eight. This episode is already this season is already head and shoulders above previous seasons. Oh, definitely, I agree. Um, like, you know, I don't think there has been a stretch of ten episodes in a row that have been collectively as strong as this stretch. Well, there's, there's just and it's not energy. because of Worf at all, actually. Yeah, there's there's just some energy and some focus and a, like, yeah, there's just a... They've just started telling the stories that are suited to Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I, I really think, and, and you know, you can see it when you watch stuff like Battlestar Galactica. There, there, is a, there is a story that is just inside whatever the combination of Ron Moore and Iris Stephen Bear's wheelhouse is. And we have started telling them consistently. I'll say this. None of the episodes we've gotten thus far even remotely made me think, oh, well, that was just a next-gen episode that they dusted off. Yeah. Like, these aren't stories you tell on Next Generation. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the four. I, I thoroughly enjoy watching this. I get a good chuckle out of the entire thing. And just all the little touches like when he goes like what all we had was a down weather balloon i can't i can't get my voice that gravelly i'm sorry and then like chops on the cigar like it's just so completely thoroughly well done uh on those little details like it, it didn't read as lazy it read as charming so yeah the ham-fisted moralizing almost yeah me had they found and, and to the writer's credit they do seem to acknowledge that they did lean a little hard on the stupid 20th century humans thing i'm not sure what lesson there is to learn here but if the writers had found something else for the character to learn that would have been great but you know it's 43 minutes and you know well and that's the thing the the sort of off notes are only like 30 seconds yeah yeah oh god we didn't get yeah there were no it wasn't like we also visited a protest at the at the army base about nuclear power like we 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 maybe that's something else i liked about this episode it's nothing it doesn't drag it's not like we got repetitive scenes of interrogation or stuff just dragged or we had to jump back to the station for a story about some you know you know jake learning to read or something i don't know like so like having no b story helps this a lot (laughs) and really you know to my mind the best deep space nine episodes so far have been all a story yeah yeah yeah, I, I like I said, I've learned to let go of my problems of a tonally different, narratively unrelated B story. But I do agree that when we don't need to jump back to the station for a B story, it's good. Okay. Well, that was one of the problems with past tense. You know, it, they kept jumping back to Kira and O'Brien doing it's nothing like, to help the story. Yeah. Yeah. Even if I were really engrossed with, you know the story of Gabriel Bell and all that stuff, which I wasn't because that moralizing was also way overdone. Um, you know, I keep getting this like coitus interruptus, you know, it's like, stop dragging me out of this and let me just try to enjoy it for what it is. Right. And so, you know, this episode is just much crisper because it doesn't do that. Uh, and the bits are allowed to breathe and, you know, so Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I had my reservations, and I, I I feel confident enough in my own opinion to say that I do think this is above average. And so it's an eight from the both of us. Okay. Um, yep. 
total of an eight. Uh, I think that's it for uh, this podcast. So uh, we will see you all for the next one. And uh, have a good night. Keep watching the skies.